that sense, it, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the person that's, that's responsible for how, how people get on doing it, you know, how people learn. Um, so yes, I'm the, I'm the head teacher. Although, interestingly, it's something which is about to change. You know, we've just recruited someone who's going to be taking on that position for me, someone that I'm really excited about because I think that in many respects he's better than I am. But, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm not actually a mentor. I make people who make things. I mean, the Vice Academy started as... Um, a, a really an, an idea based on something that I wish existed that, that didn't and often I mean any of the stuff that I've done outside of my previous working life was things was basically trying to create things that, that didn't exist that I wish did I mean it's as simple as that so you could argue that it's quite selfish it's something that I wish existed that I could be the consumer of and it, and it didn't and I found that disappointing so I thought well you know no point beating about it I should get on and make it but um, although initially and predominantly, certainly as far as people are aware right now, it's, it's a place where people come to learn, but there's actually many other dimensions to the Bicycle Academy. So we teach people how to make bikes, but more broadly than that, we are trying to make it easier for people to make bikes, easier for more people to make bikes, and easier for different people to make bikes than perhaps the normal sorts that end up doing it. So, in order to achieve that, I mean, the, the most apparent way of getting to, to any kind of meaningful outcome is to improve education, improve the provision for education within bicycle making, but actually there's other things too. So make it easier for people to, to get hold of the bits and pieces that they need, the things that they would use, the ingredients to make the bike. Um, enable them to make bikes more accurately and, and more affordably by improving the, the design and the availability of the tooling, the specialist tooling that you would need. Um, and uh, create places for them to do so and make it easier for them to, 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 to get stuck in without having to travel miles and miles or, or um, even worse, get on a plane, you know. So the teaching, the educational side of things is where we started and it's what we've become renowned for. But there's also a product development side of the company there's a retail side and there's a facility side. Um, so education is one of four, um, one of four functions within the company, really. And that sounds already formal and businessy, but it, it, it's not really. It's about thinking in what ways are we able to achieve that goal of you know, democratizing frame building. Um, One of the mistakes that people make is thinking about teaching rather than thinking about learning. Teaching is only there to facilitate the learning. It sounds like a subtle point, but I think it's really important, actually. I think there are people who think, right, I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach this thing. And that, Im that implies that they're going to be projecting something, something that they have, and they're going to be projecting that outwards. And I actually think that the right approach or the best, the most effective approach is to, is to invert that a little bit, actually. It might sound facetious or I don't think it is. I really, I really think that it's critical, that this, this point is critical. If you think about the recipient 
who shouldn't be the recipient, who should be, you, you're, the, some, the person you're trying to enable, the person you're trying to help, what do they need? What do they need? And then you tailor what you do to, to enable that, right? to, to make that possible. So with that in mind, when people learn things, I mean, there's different ways of learning things, and, you, and, it's, and there's lots of, there's a huge amount of research and, and, and study that goes into the act of learning, and, and indeed you could argue that people learn different things in different ways. So the way that one might learn a language versus the way might, one might learn to carve a spoon, actually the, you would probably tailor those things differently, and indeed we do. The way that people learn their first language is almost entirely tacit. That being that rather than being an explicit, direct transfer of, of, of information, it's something which you absorb without conscious thought. And it's, and it's bolstered, it's, it's, it's improved by an explicit approach too. So you, you go into the mechanics of the, of the, of the gr grammar and, 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 and the rules related to spelling. But you don't start by that, and you certainly don't do it all that way. And the way that people do other things, maybe learn to, to ride a bike or learn to throw a ball, or, um, is often through this tacit absorption. And for many people, the way that they would learn their profession would be tacit too. I mean, um, the apprenticeship model is, is largely tacit. It's repetition and it's time spent, time served. Gladwell in Outliers talks about 10,000 hours. And, and it's a really interesting point that's been overused and, and is, is greatly simplified. And it's not the whole picture. It, it's not the only way to learn. People don't learn to become surgeons purely by cutting a few people up and they sort of work it out in the end and they sort of copy someone else's cutting someone else up and then I've killed 500 but I'm, I've started, there's less of them that I'm killing now and, and I'm starting to get really good and I think I could become a professional at this. I mean, that's a really ineffective and inappropriate way of learning certain things. And yet, within physical skills, um, or the domain of physical skills, that's still largely what people see as the most legitimate way of learning. And my argument is that it's not. My argument is that the most effective way of learning is to try and deconstruct, decode uh, the tacit skills, which clearly many people um, have, and articulate that in such a way that you can intelligently understand what's going on, why it's happening, and on what basis. And then you can engage in meaningful, intelligent practice which is, which is, of course, invariably partially tacit. So you need to be developing muscle memory and familiarity with the, with the hand, you know, the, 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 the movements and the, and, and the process. But it's being done using a whole other chunk of your brain that otherwise we just unplug because, because, it's, a, because it's a craft. The only way you can do it is you just do it a lot. And that's just... It's okay, but it's not the most effective way. So what we do here at the Bicycle Academy is we teach people explicitly, but we complement that with tacit. So we try and make sure that for any given thing that we teach, there's enough of each of those things, that when they leave, so each of those formats of learning, that when they leave, they've already entered into the phase of meaningful practice. They understand explicitly what it is they're doing, why and how, and on what basis this works, and if I do this, then that happens. They, they've got a feedback loop, if this, then that. It's not just that they, they see a result, but they don't really know how to attribute it. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding. If I ask someone how, to, if they're riding a bicycle, you're riding along on a bicycle, 
and I say to you, how would you, in, how would you turn left on your bicycle? You're riding at a counter, how would you turn left? Almost everybody says the wrong thing. They say one of two things. Most people will say, well, you turn the handlebars to the left a little bit. Well, if you do that, you, you actually you fall over to the right. That's actually what happens. So if you program a robot to do that, that doesn't have any intuition, it just does it exactly what you tell it to do or program it to do, the robot will fall over to the right. So then they say, oh, well, you lean left a bit. Well, actually, if you just lean left a bit, what will actually happen, what a human will do, is the, the human will uh, carry on going straight. They don't turn left. To turn left, you have to turn right. Because what happens is when you turn the, the handlebars right a little bit, in, it, it creates an imbalance. And that imbalance pushes the rider, the, 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 the way that the rider will behave is, uh, is that they will lean ever so slightly to the, to the left by turning to the right. And when they lean to the left, they'll then compensate so they don't fall over by turning the, the handlebars a bit to the left. And, the, and the, the, the combination of those things in that order means they start turning left. But it's really interesting. If you watch parents in any given park on a Sunday afternoon trying to teach their kid to turn left on a bike that doesn't have stabilizers, they'll say, oh, turn the, turn the thing to the left. They're doing it wrong. And isn't that silly? We're all, like, riding a bike's really relatively easy, and surely that's a really straightforward thing. And it's something that people fundamentally misunderstand. Because what they don't appreciate is the tacit understanding and reaction that's going on, that intuition, that means that they get the result that they expect. They attribute it to the wrong thing, because they haven't decoded it properly. And so that they, if you ask them to write a list of instructions for a robot, all their bloody robots would fall over. So... I'm not interested in teaching on that basis, but it's interesting to apply that test. If you literally said that to a robot, what would it do? And what you find out is that it doesn't always work out. So what I've had to do, and what we do here, is we endlessly go through a process of trying to decode what's actually happening. When someone's doing a thing, when they're performing a task, when they're trying to achieve a result, what's actually happening? And what's the bit that's between the lines, which they don't realize they're doing? And that's what makes the difference. And that's why it works for us and that we've been able to achieve what we're, what we're doing and hope to do more of. But it's not rocket science. It's just changing the way you think about it. People come to the Bicycle Academy for lots of different reasons. They, they, they come here literally because they want to build a bicycle. But more often than not, that's actually just a part of why they're here. And, and that's something which I didn't realise would happen. I mean, actually, if I, if I think about it, it's precisely why I'm doing it, because I was missing parts of my life that I'd grown to realise were missing. And I think that's a very common theme with people. But what we see with our students is that they, they're looking for a physical engagement with their lives. They're looking to create something tangible something which is broadly understood. A lot of people work, even if they're doing what could be argued as, um, I don't know, um, otherwise well understood and, and, and established, performing established roles within industries which have been around for a long time, an architect, a design engineer, um, an accountant, a lawyer. These are all things which carry... Um, I guess you could say status and, and that people would see value in, but, but they, feel, they don't feel nourished by those things because even though they create positive impact 
in the main and they're essential parts of society, they just don't feel connected. And it's because often people are doing things which have very little tangible outcome. And then there's all sorts of people who do perform roles that didn't exist five, ten years ago and that their mum and their dad don't even understand what they do. And so when they're coming home and seeing family and you know, having the inevitable conversation on how's work and they just see sort of vacant stares back from their loved ones who just don't really get it. And, and so they cease to try. They just, they measure themselves based on other things like how much money they earn or, and that's just vacuous. No one's truly merged like that. It's just, it, it, you know. So the amount, every time I start a course, I sit down with the, 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 the students and, and I ask them why they're here. You know, why are we here? What, what's this about for you? And even without prompting, people talk to me about that stuff. And they always feel a bit silly. They always say it thinking that probably they're the only one. And then they realise that they're, they're certainly not. And that's, that's a huge relief often. You know, they feel, they feel like, um, they feel like perhaps they were being a bit silly and actually realise that it's, it's perfectly legitimate for them to feel the way that they feel. It's not, you know, and it's perfectly okay for them to look for something else somewhere else. Most of the people that come here aren't looking to become a professional bicycle maker. Most of the people coming here are looking to get some kind of fulfillment from their life and probably and hopefully for them, for bicycle making to, to deliver some of that. Um, and then through the journey of making the bicycle and learning about how they make it, they go through a really interesting emotional ride where they're realising they know more than they thought they did and in some cases they know a lot less. They realise that they have the capacity to achieve that learning, so despite the fact they don't know it in some cases, that, oh, actually I'm getting my head around it, this isn't, I can, maybe I can do this. And then we get onto the physical side of it and they start making it and they always feel more achy and more tired and fatigued by that than they thought they would and all they're doing is standing up at a workbench and using a file and they feel like they've run a marathon. And, they, and that further emphasises that there's a huge part of their life which they're or their capacity, which they're not engaged with. And, um, but just like when people do exercise and then feel tired afterwards, it's, it's that wonderful feeling of, I'm tired because I've done something. So they all feel a surge of excitement about that the following day. They say, I'm tired, but it's brilliant. I haven't felt this in ages. And then, then they struggle. And it's important that they struggle. So I don't create a struggle for them because I'm a shit, but I do that actually because it's part of the learning process. It's important for them to reach a point where they, they're struggling to unpick how to get past it or they're struggling to control their limbs in order to achieve the result because they're tired or because they've, they've reached the limit of their understanding or, or their control. That's really important because that's going to happen when they leave here in other areas of their life and certainly within the pursuit of making more bicycles. So if we don't help them to push through that and help them to understand how, then we're not doing them, then then we're not doing them a service that they the, the service that they deserve. We're not helping them as we should be, because actually it's that bit that, that I think often leads to people giving up because they don't. Most people don't frequently face that, and lots of people will take the comfortable route. And actually, in society now, there's always shortcuts. Well, let's just ask Google, or let's just ask your mate. I've got a friend who can do that. Oh, I've got a radiator leak. I could learn how to do it, but. I was going to go and do this other thing and uh, I tell you what, I'll ask 
my friend to come and, and that's fine. And then you never actually put, you never push yourself through, you don't push yourself through that. So that's really interesting because the way that people respond in that, at that point is really varied. Some people thrive on it, others have a meltdown, like they have a meltdown. I've had a guy throw a piece of tubing across the room. And he even said to me, um, I don't want you to fucking teach me, I just want to know how to do it. Right? Think about that. I don't want you to fucking teach me. I just want to know how to do it. It's completely meaningless. But it was amazing. I thought it was a brilliant moment. I can't remember if he threw the thing before or after he said that, but it was the same guy. And so I said, I think it's time for a coffee. So we sat down and made him a cup of coffee and let him simmer a bit. And I said, I, I, I'm not being, I'm not trying to piss you off. I just want, I want you to think about what you said. And what had happened was I very deliberately wanted to test his competence with something. So I'm teaching him and I changed something about the setup without telling him. Because I'd noticed when I was getting him to do what he was doing, that actually it looked like he was doing, he was performing his task based on rhythm or muscle memory or rather than control. He wasn't feeding back any kind of information from the result of what he's doing in a, in a, on a micro scale and then thinking, so what, what do I need to do to tweak it to get better? It just so happened that what he was doing with the setup that he had and the things he'd already been doing was largely the same. So I needed to see if he could respond, if he could exert true control. So by changing a, a, one of the parameters without him knowing, either he would respond because he'd notice or he'd just keep doing the same thing and suddenly it wouldn't work anymore. And it was the latter, he just kept doing the same thing. That's fine. Once I realise that that's what's happening, I can address it. But it would be doing him a disservice to send him into the wider world thinking he's bloody brilliant at doing this thing when actually it was just because it just so happened that what he was doing worked, not because he was controlling. It'd be like learning to drive around the racetrack and get really bloody good at it and then thinking I'm a really good driver and then getting out onto the open road and turning left within 500 yards and crashing into a bloody tree because, well, when I did it last time, I turned left at this distance and that was fine. I mean, that's not learning to drive. That's learning to drive in that context. So, I explained this to him. He, he looked a little sceptical and, and uh, he stopped throwing things. And he said to me, well, look, uh, I, I, okay, but I don't really know how to, I don't know how we can make this work. And I said, well, I'll tell you how we're going to make it work. I, I'm going I'm to let you know that I'm going to change something. I'm just not going to let you know what I'm changing. So you don't feel silly. I'm not trying to trip you up to make you feel silly. I'm trying to help you. So he said, okay. You know, like he accepted the challenge. So I changed something else. And he got it right. And then he cried. Because he was so overwhelmed with, that, with the feeling of, of competence that he, he'd executed. His realisation that holy shit, maybe I can do this, really do this, by the, the most stringent measure. At the beginning of the Bicycle Academy, he and everybody else that, that came were, were only given um, the opportunity to build one bike. And this was a bike which they weren't allowed to keep. And... The bike was um, 
designed for and ultimately donated to um, uh, some charities in, in, in Africa. It ended up being Namibia, although specifically where actually hadn't been decided at it from the outset other than um, it was going to be sent to the African continent. Um, and these bikes are, are all the same. They're designed to be um, workhorses, mules, that would enable people who don't have transportation and whose lives suffer as a result of that to unlock potential. So school teachers, school children, and healthcare workers. So who would be able to create the most positive impact in their community by having the, the ability to, 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 to travel more easily. I came up with the idea to restrict people like that, as in the students. I, you know, I wanted to restrict them to only building a bike that they couldn't keep and that would be given to people less fortunate for two completely unrelated reasons. But what's lovely is that by doing this, it, 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 it marries them together in a way that I think is both elegant and, and effective. And that is, when you're learning to do something, if the thing that you're, if it, if it results in you making something, well, the thing that you're gonna make isn't gonna be the best thing that you ever make, assuming you do more of the same. And for lots of people, the internal desire to make that thing legitimate by other people's measure so that your mates think, think it's cool and so that it looks something like, you know, it looks the way that you assumed it would or can get in the way of people really engaging in learning because they've got, they've got a conflicting motivation for it to be good. And actually learning to do something isn't necessarily about it being good, it's about it being effective in providing you with opportunity to, to, to grow. So if everyone is making a bike that they're gonna keep, that they're, everyone definitely is gonna make, want that bike to be awesome by all sorts of measures which are actually unimportant, you know, in some cases at least. So what I realized was that if I said to them, you're not allowed to keep the bike, so you can let go of all those anxieties because you're not gonna keep it. And actually the things that aren't going to be as good as you hoped for have zero impact on its functional usefulness to this other group of people over here who really don't give a shit about the fact that the, 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 might, the, um, the brazes are elegant. They just want them to be functional. It's not going to get them to school anymore easily if, if, if the braze or the weld is, is elegant. As long as it's strong, as long as the frame's straight, as long as it's well designed and well made, they're going to be over the moon. Now, separately, I had been raising some money through various event activities that I'd organised for a mountain bike club that I'd started and run um, to raise money for, for charities that, that gave people bikes in Africa for the very same reason. And that was something I was very proud of and, that, and, I, and, I, and I cared about, and I do care about. And so it just seemed like a wonderful opportunity to generate some more meaningful help for these charities, i.e. ultimately the result that they're trying to achieve is a bicycle, so why don't we make a bicycle that's really designed around the user rather than just giving them money that they use to send out old bicycles from the UK that may or may not be any good. And 
need loads of maintenance and just aren't really a, an effective way of helping the end user. Why don't we design a bike which is fit for purpose and generate those bikes by teaching other people who pay for the teaching. That's what they're paying for. That's their transaction. They're paying for us to teach them. And we teach them to make bicycles by them making a bicycle that they don't get to keep. And then we cover the cost of donating the bike as a philanthropic aspect of what we are. Um, and everybody's happy. So he made, he made one of those bikes and that's now in Namibia with his name on it, being ridden by somebody who had no opportunity to get hold of a bike previous to that. They had no means to do that and now they can use that bike and it's helping them and their community. But before the Bicycle Academy, I was a, a, a mechanical design engineer in the offshore oil and gas industry. And before that, I did some work in aerospace on the Airbus A380. And I'd worked really, really hard through university. I'd, been, I'd done well at GCSEs, but without really trying. And that sounds really arrogant, but it's the truth. I, I just, I, I think at that level, my aptitude was such that I could, I kind of got stuff. And then A-level, I was terrible and I failed it twice, failed my A-levels twice. And it was a huge shock to the system because my mum especially was deeply ashamed of me. And she told me, which is pretty horrible. And, but it's true. And we, you know, she's wonderful and I love her dearly. And so it's not, that's not an unfair criticism. It, 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 it's squarely what happened. And it's because she was brought up in a, in a family that was incredibly successful at lots of different things. Her father was a, a general in the French Air Force and, and she grew up having the Prime Minister of France for dinner, like as in, in their house. And her, her, her brother-in-law was um, Monsieur Robert and there's, so Robert Stitchnery, so Robert's Collins Stitchnery, the, the Robert, Robert is my uncle. And all these people were really successful in their own field and, and they didn't know anything other than that. And they were privileged. And I was, I grew up with her telling me that I would be, you know, it was important that I made the family proud. And by their measure. And you could argue that's horrible, but it wasn't. It was done with, she didn't know any difference. She, she, she felt that in a, in, a, in, a, in a positive sense. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't meant to be overbearing, but of course it was. So that was my A-levels and I repeated them and then I met my girlfriend, now wife, and so I failed them again because that was quite a distraction. And, and then I went to university and I had something to prove to myself and to regain any kind of favour within the family and, and um, so that I was no longer going to be the, the, the member of the family that isn't spoken of. Um, and I worked fucking hard and I got, and I told my I told everyone in my family that I was going to get a first class honours. And that's completely meaningless. It doesn't matter and it's not important, but it's for those reasons and, and I wanted to prove that I could. I nearly broke myself doing that, like emotionally, because the weight of, it wasn't, it was because I, I felt like I, I, I had to. And I really wanted to because I deeply cared rightly or wrongly about what my family and my parents thought of me 
and I wanted to prove to them that I had substance. Should I have done that? Does it really matter? When I bring my son up, will I put that pressure on him? I definitely won't put the pressure on him, but I can see how it ultimately, I learned a lot about myself, and I learned a lot about what was possible, and I actually generated an understanding of a different threshold. I realised that I was capable of a lot more than I thought I was. I didn't think I could endure that level of pressure or effort. Because like, actually, when you're partway through, you realise, shit, this is much harder than I thought it was going to be. And actually, why the hell have I made this commitment? I then went into engineering. And did it because I felt like it legitimised everything that I'd done and that it would be achieving a job that had value and, and worth, genuinely, not just within the, by the measure of my mum or the, my extended family, but genuinely, I, felt, I feel, I felt like it was a, an important role in, in society because you're solving problems and creating solutions to those problems, you know, broadly. Um, but what I very quickly realised was that within the industries that I was working, I wasn't actually doing that. I was basically just facilitating some people making more money than they already had. It wasn't actually about solving the problems, not truthfully. That's not to say that engineering isn't. I'm just saying because it, it definitely is. But organisations, lots of them, end up becoming overtly focused on financial gain sometimes and at the expense of the core of what they do and what made them successful in the first instance, which in many cases is the founders or you know the founders of the company really caring about how they do what they do and what the result is and on what basis they do it and that's what set them apart. It's not just because it's cheaper, although that's obviously a part of it. And inevitably for these things to be successful, you have to factor money in. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there are organisations which forget that and they just they just focus on the money. And if you consider, if you're employing people who have spent their entire life to that point, converging upon a vocation, which isn't about making money, because there are a lot more effective ways of making money than being a design engineer, or indeed a teacher, or a healthcare worker, things which are often recognised as vocational, rather than simply just a mercenary job. It seems odd that then a company would fail to engage them on that basis and, 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 and fail to exist in, in and of itself with that being the, uh, the core. So I fell out of love with everything that I'd worked towards. So over seven years, I progressively realised that everything I'd worked towards, while it was, I believed in the essence of it, I wasn't able to exercise it at all. So I started looking for, rather than looking for jobs as a design engineer, I was looking for companies that cared about the stuff that I cared about. And I was happy to change what I did entirely. That didn't really matter as long as who I was working for or with cared about the stuff that I cared about. It just so happened that I came up with something before I found somewhere that I wanted to work.
age of, I think, about eight, found riding bikes to be something that gave me more enjoyment than pretty much any other pursuit. pursuit. I, 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 I love playing football, I love playing tennis and golf and, and, and running around. But, but anyway, like I, I really enjoyed riding bikes and so like anything in life, if you enjoy it, you tend to gravitate towards doing more of it and it wasn't a concerted effort, it's just something that happened and then I started racing mountain bikes as a teenager and working in a bike shop and, and I became passionate about it and it embodied lots of different things, not least and more, most importantly the community aspect of it, you, you know, not in a formal sense, but you, you make friends who do the same thing and, and inevitably that strengthens your enjoyment of it because you have something in common and you, in, in, and you share experiences and um, and so it's always been a part of my life and I was doing more and more of it. I'd set up an event in Froome, the Cobble Wobble, which was just a really silly bicycle race to make people have fun, not to make them have fun, that's the worst kind of fun, but to give people the opportunity to have some fun, you know, in a way that isn't, it can be whatever they want, they can take it seriously and try and get the, become king of the cobbles and get the fastest time and train, or they can dress as a robot uh, called the Cobblebot and, and ride up the hill and sort of fall over a bit at the end. And just the fact they've got to the top and made a load of people laugh means they've had more fun and, than otherwise. And, and, and there aren't many events like that. And to me, cycling can be lots of different things to lots of different people. So that's what the event was. And it, it existed because it didn't exist. It existed, I made it because that sort of thing, I couldn't find it. I set up a club to build some trails on an area of land that I'd already built some bicycle trails on with some friends that, that was illegal to do so, but it was with the, the, the informal blessing of the people who operated the land because we looked after it. But then when they couldn't avoid it, you know, the, the, the matter formally, when they had to deal with it, um, you know, I worked really hard to, to set up a club and pay them money so that we could do it legitimately and gave a huge amount of my time to do it. Because when I was a kid, there wasn't somewhere that you could go and ride bikes properly off-road. You could, but you were always on someone else's land. So I thought, well, why should I, I should be the one who makes it happen then. So I put a huge amount of my time into doing that and growing a, from a group of, a, a core group of about eight people who I knew you know, were involved in it to 200 odd people. And I was putting on events and coaching kids. We all were, we were all doing it. It was a wonderful thing. And the point is that I was doing more and more outside of my day-to-day -day job that gave me nourishment and the day-to-day -day job was something I would endure because it gave me income and then like many people in my position or in a similar position I would spend that money frivolously because it would also convince me of convince me that this was possibly an acceptable life choice because I could buy a nice DSLR or um, a car or so I'd spend a lot of money and spend more than I really could afford to spend but then I was trapped in the job. So then I would appease myself by spending more money. And then when I really faced up to the reality that I didn't enjoy what I was doing and this other stuff that I was giving most of my life to in truth, all of my evenings and weekends at the expense of my 
relationship with my then fiance, um, I needed to do something about that. I needed to break that cycle. And so I looked for other jobs, couldn't find any that I really liked, found one and didn't quite get there because I didn't have the experience and I wouldn't have employed me to do that job, but I was going to give it a good try. And then had this idea for, oh, I wish this thing existed because it doesn't exist for me. I want to learn to build a bicycle frame and why am I being patronised? I can't be the only one. And then it just struck me, do you know what? This is like the cobble wobble. This is like the bicycle, you know, the mountain bike club. This is the same thing. And I'm good at that stuff. I'm good at making something happen when I give a shit about it. And when I wish it did, when I give a shit about this and I wish it did. And it actually, it mixed a lot of things that I cared about and I think I'm quite good at. It mixed um, making of things um, although I don't, that's not what I'm engaged in predominantly, I have to understand it. So it needed my technical understanding. It needed my understanding of bicycles and bicycle riding. It needed my ability to organise things and make stuff happen. It needed my ability to um, communicate with people, to, to convince isn't the word, but to to share what I'm doing in a way that it gives them an opportunity to engage with it too. You could argue it's storytelling, but it, I mean, it's real because it's all happening and happens. Um, to resonate with people, there we go. My ability to resonate with people, which I think I can do when I care about something. I think I'm able to get through to people and to share with them why, and then it either does or it doesn't, but at least it gives them the opportunity to. And so, and my mother's a teacher, my then fiance, now wife, is a teacher and I'd read a lot about teaching and also knowledge capture and transferring, tacit knowledge, explicit knowledge, decoding. I was really interested in that anyway and it just seemed like it was this smash up of all of these things together and I was beyond the point where I was previously more scared of starting and failing such a thing. Now I was more scared of never doing it and maybe falling apart, having a complete and utter meltdown because I was trapped in this life that I didn't identify with at all. So suddenly the stakes were very different. I realised that if I kept going as I was, there would be very little of me left. I had to put what I had left into trying something different. Of course, I didn't know how to build bikes. I had an idea, but I didn't know. And there are people who do know and do do it. And that's how they make their money and that's what they do with their life. And so I, I, mean, I came up with the idea and I published my thoughts on a blog. And because I'd done these other things, I had some, like there were some people who would read what I would write. And it was enough people who happened to share the same kinds of interests that it picked up some, some steam. And that gave me affirmation that, that I, I wasn't alone. And one thing led to another. I, I got put in touch with someone who is an established maker of bicycles and motorcycles and had been doing it for around 50 years. And I approached him and said, Look, I'd love to, this is what I'm trying to do. I'd like to make, teach people how to make bikes or create an organisation that teaches people how to make bikes, people that would otherwise not be able to. I want to teach them in a way that's 
based on them learning. So I want to think about how we do that. I want to go right down to the basics to unlock it. And I also want to do so with these bikes that we give away. So this is my sort of loose skeleton of an idea. How do you feel about working for me doing that? Or even being a partner with me? And he didn't want to be a partner, he, you know, he's over that kind of stuff. And, but he was happy to do a trial. So he would try and teach me what he knows and I would try and develop the teaching and we'd see if it works and if he liked doing it. And what was really interesting is, I mean, he's exceptionally good at doing it, but it was largely mimicry. That's, that's really what was going on. It was, watch me now do. And he was, of course, trying to unlock that and do more and teach. But what I found was there was a bit like the turning left on a bike and, and, and falling over rocks to the right-hand side. There was a bit of that. What he was doing and what he was saying was, was sometimes subtly and sometimes less so different. So I realized, and I also, by the way, you know, I had questions like, at what temperature does this process happen? You know, technically, what, what's going on? What's the science behind it? You know, I'm a, a design engineer, one that worked hard and did well. So I, I understand a lot of that stuff and I, and I want to base my doing on, on some of that too. So, but he didn't know any of that stuff because as he put it, you know, none of that matters if I can do it well. And I understand and appreciate that, but it wasn't really, it wasn't complete. I mean, it's not complete, and, and it would limit what we could do going forwards, anyway. So I was teaching myself the technicalities of it, separately to that mimicry, that process of mimicry. And I was trying to, all the while, trying to decode the process, trying to... Um, demystify it as well, you know. And time went on. Uh, we started, we you know, I crowdfunded the business and there's a there's a huge part of what led to the Bicycle Academy existing that's relate that's specifically centered around the crowdfunding, but we we you know we, we carried on with me practicing and him showing and I started the business, he was doing the teaching initially, but it was all based on mimicry. And we got some really good results because he was very good at doing. And so just by showing people the way that he did it, people would invariably do better than they otherwise would. But it wasn't groundbreaking, it wasn't, you know. And then he got ill with a pre-existing, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he's an old guy and he, he, he was, he had to take some time off. and. And I had to take over, I had students there, and I said to them, look, I'm really sorry, I know you've signed up on this basis and this guy's not here, but give me a chance for a day, and if it doesn't work out, then I can, I will give you your money back and we'll arrange another thing, but there's no way I could have known that this was gonna happen today, so what do you say, what, what do you think? And they said, that's fine. And that day went well, and so they stayed for the rest of the week, and what was really interesting is the results from the end of that week were better than we'd ever had. And we've been going for about three months. We opened in the July, and we, we go November time that that happened. And so, um, I thought, well, maybe these are outliers. Maybe these were just students who had great aptitude, and so carried on. And I was, I stopped. 
teaching it the way that I that he was, i.e. the mimicry. And I, and I started leafing in a lot more of the stuff which I'd accumulated for my own benefit initially, but always planning to unroll that at some point. And week on week, for the next three months, the results were better and better until they were by far and away totally and unrecognisably different. They were completely different. And I was having each of the students make the point of speaking to me, emailing me, ringing me up afterwards, saying, I had such a good time and I can't believe how far I've come. And you've really got a knack for this. I don't know that you know, but I've never been taught how to do something this way. Now, I had made a concerted effort at that point to, to, to deploy some kind of particular methodology for teaching. I was aware of, I'd spent time reading about, you know, um, there's a wonderful Harvard Business Review paper called The Knowledge Creating Company. And I'd spent some time at Oxford University doing a course about knowledge transfer all because of outside interests ne never with a particular plan for this and before the vice academy and i tried to kind of theorize the best way of learning when i was starting to do the the, the, the brazing um with this guy and and try with friends i try and make sense of it and so i was it wasn't like it was a complete accident but it wasn't a concerted effort to do it in a particular way it just evolved to be that and so I distilled it into something for which there is, there is a plan, there is a, there is a method, there is a process. And realised that I didn't need to be a professional maker of bicycles to be a successful teacher of the process. What I needed is a sensitivity to the process, an awareness and an understanding of the underpinning science and engineering that, that truthfully is what's happening at this temperature the grain structure of the material behaves this way and it's only because of this that you get the result that you wish for. You need to understand those facts and they are facts, it's not artistry, it's a, it's a fact-based process. Engineering is the application of science and although there's people talk about the art of bicycle making, there is no art in the process of the engineering. That's not artistry. That's, there is artistry in bicycle making but they are different facets of it. It's a misunderstanding to say that there's an art to welding or an art to brazing. So by taking that approach, by being quite objective about that and unapologetic, I was able to extract the facts, collate them, make sense of them, look at how I communicate them. So that's it, transferring explicit to explicit. Then there's the transference of, or the transfer of, um, tacit to explicit, so decoding what he did and what other people did. It's not just him, there's lots of other people I watched and learned from. To try and decode that. Then to communicate that to someone so that they can make it tacit again, so that they do it more instinctively. So they have to absorb it and turn it into something which is automatic rather than conscious. And so it was really thinking about all of that and that wider process that meant that we, the Bicycle Academy, but at that point me, the non-bicycle maker, were successful at teaching. So it's this really sort of, it's quite sweet really, and I wish I'd never made a bicycle, I wish I still only had, but I wish I'd never did in a way, 
because there'd be something really pure about that and it would really press the point that you don't need to be a bicycle maker to teach bicycle making. You just need to have a, a deep and real understanding of all that's involved and, one of, and, and a deep understanding of learning. And if you've got those two things, then you can teach it. But of course, being the enthusiast that I am, of course I've made some bicycles, but that's not why I'm doing this. I'm, I'm lucky that whenever I want to, I can make some bicycles. But what's more resonant with me, and I think is more important, is that I'm the guy in bicycle making that's trying to press this point and trying to unlock it this way. It's not important that I make bicycles. There are other people that can do it better than me. If I was to focus purely on the, 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 you could argue, the cold, factual side of the process of making bicycles then, and, and learning how to do so, I just don't think that that would be, I mean, it wouldn't be true to, to me and it wouldn't be true to what the ultimate result needs to be and, and should be. What I'm trying to do is, is effectively dissect the various aspects of it so that people can treat each of them appropriately when learning and doing. So we also spend almost all of the downtime in between the teaching and, and talking about immersed in the romantic side, the, the artistry of creation and, and, and specifically bicycles. And I've got a deep love for that. I value that deeply. I, I care about what something says to me. I don't just care about whether it is or isn't actually any better. You know, I, I've just bought a little camera that by some, of, by some measures isn't as good as some other cameras. But that's not all that matters to me. What matters to me is my is, is my emotional response to the camera. So the camera looks a particular way, but that's illegitimate to me if it isn't underpinned by a functional competence. So it has to be functionally capable. But some aspects of the camera are technically, they're not as good as some of, so some of the aspects of the camera could be better or more, more effective or efficient. So for example, the way that it focuses but I really enjoy pulling focus by hand. I really enjoy that. I want a camera that's going to have full manual control because I really enjoy learning about photography and learning about how I can change the result of the outcome. And I'm deliberately not learning some of those things the way that I'm teaching people to learn to build bicycles because I'm not trying, I'm not trying to get to the same point. I'm enjoying the tacit process of learning by doing. And so clearly I, there's contradiction here, but it's what I'm trying to get across to people is that each of these things have value. And I just believe that the best way of the best way of realizing that value is to understand how they are different and then to choose how you engage with those things. And in my capacity of running the place for people to come to learn to make bicycles, then the best way that I can do that 
is to, is to showcase the, a method which most effectively enables them to learn. But we debate it too, and I talk to them about how they could learn it different, in a different way, in a more classic way. I talk to them about how, despite this join being stronger, or this feature being better functioning for the bike, it might not resonate with people emotionally, and then you might not sell it any of them, and so it's hollow. It doesn't. It might not mean anything if one of the measures that you care about is being able to sell some. Because even if it's the best bike in the world, if no one's going to ride the bloody thing, then no one gets the joy from it. Let alone you making any money from it. So, so what really matters? Well, you need to be pragmatic. You need to be. You need to look at it in a holistic sense. You need to look at the whole. People don't just buy things or engage with them based on the actual benefits of them that are quantifiable. They also buy things and engage with them based on a, on a hard to understand at times emotional response. And if you, are, if you don't have that, then you, you won't be nourished in the same way, but you also won't be successful. So I, I, I don't devalue it, I'm just trying to separate it. You need advice. Um, a saw, you don't even need a saw, it just saves you a bit of time. I mean, it's much better to use a saw, but if you didn't have a saw, you, you wouldn't be able, you know, you wouldn't be restricted to not being able to make a bicycle because you could do it with a file, it would just take you longer to cut through the thing. So, you need a, a, a vice, a half round file, a bit of string, a marker, a straight edge, but you can use the string for that if you use it properly and a way of sticking it all together. That's it, that's what you really need. If you're on a desert island, you wouldn't think, I'm not gonna make this amazing pedalo because I, that's because I, because I don't have. You would use those things and you would do it. And there's some amazing people like the Taylor brothers who used to make bikes that would race in the milk race, which is now the Tour of Britain, but lots of people have known of it as the milk race. And they, there's a wonderful video on YouTube of them aligning their bicycle frame that they've made by holding it up, looking out a window, closing one eye, and lining up the tubes to the spire of a church. Now, that's freaking brilliant. And it's about understanding what is or isn't fit for purpose. It's really easy in today's society to get het up and caught, you know, to get caught up with, sorry, the, the this perception that you need a laser pointer to point at something at a menu. You don't, you, like, it doesn't need to be accurate to within five hundredths of a, it doesn't need to be, what, what's, what's happening? What, what are you really doing and on what basis is it being used? Because people can make something very accurately with, by deploying modern technologies, doesn't mean you should or you have to or that it makes it inherently more valuable or more worthwhile. There are advantages and in mass production Automating certain things, automating the production of a bicycle will save someone some money. It will also make a really good bicycle, and by some measures, in some disciplines, a better bicycle. But when you realise you don't need that, it's actually quite empowering. And when you realise you only need a few basic things, well, it definitely is empowering. a really wonderful human engagement. That, I mean, it's as simple as that. It feels like I'm engaging with someone properly, really, about something that really matters to them as a human being and will impact other parts of their lives. 
So it could be kite making, it could be anything. I think it really doesn't actually matter. The bit that matters most to me is is the way is 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 truly enabling people to learn like that, or enabling people to do a thing. Really, the fact that it's bikes is ancillary now. I'm I'm far beyond that. I still have a deep love of cycling because I think that cycling is a very love. It's just a very lovely thing. When you ride a bike, you glide along, and it feels a bit like flying. And it's one of the things that people do where they don't have to give it much conscious thought. It's an automatic. It feels like if I look over there, I go over there. So, so it, 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 you become at one with the bike once you're, and, and people equate it to when they, so some people say it's a lot like skiing. There's a state of, you know, people talk about the state of flow in lots of things, but I mean state of physical, so in terms of movement, you glide and you flow through a space physically. It's, 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 it's not short, sharp, angular changes. It's, 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 it's shallow curves, gentle undulation. It's, it's, a, it's quite a, a wonderful movement. And most people, when they ride a bike, feel, not all, obviously, but most people feel a, um, a connection with being a, a kid again as well. There's some, I just think there's something quite pure about it. It's a form of transportation, it's a form of pure enjoyment, it's a form of engaging in sport, um, there's beauty to be gained, you know, to, to be enjoyed, you know, you can, you're creating something that by some people's measure and subjectively of course, but can be seen to be beautiful, that is creative, that's, that solves problems, that presents problems, that requires deep interesting thought it's an engineering anomaly there's lots of things about bicycles which still aren't understood about the way that the bikes handle um, you can enjoy it from a purely technological standpoint in terms of production but also from one of, of, of very low volume craft based making I just think it embodies so many lovely aspects of of, um, of life